That feels like a bit much. Oh, dear. <laughs> so let's pray, and then we'll open God's word together, okay? Heavenly Father, it's good to gather as your dearly loved daughters this morning. Please open your word to us and make our hearts tender and soft to receive what you would have for each one of us this morning. By your Holy Spirit, we trust for you to, to work during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to say, way to go for being here for our third week and continuing in our study of Elijah. Keep coming. I hope that Tuesday will become your favorite day and you'll come to find, oh, how much we need one another, right? We need, I, I love Tuesdays. I can't imagine life without it, but I need the accountability, right? If I know I'm showing up on Tuesday and I'm teaching or I'm part of a group and um, it, it draws me more and more to be with the Lord and in his word. I guess I just want to start by saying this morning, can you brace yourselves a little bit? Did you hear how I prayed this morning? My prayer is that our hearts would be tender to receive what the Lord has for us today because I'm finding that this is a little bit convicting. So will you just say that you're willing <laughs> this morning? I hope so. So I read this recently. We should give God the same place in our hearts that he holds in the universe, right? He is high above it all. He made it all. He's reigning over it all. May he have that same place, the highest place in our hearts. Or you could put it like this, like Timothy Keller says, if God is not at the center of your life, something else is, something else will be. We were made to worship. We were made to live in relationship with God. Worshiping is giving honor to something. It's ascribing it ultimate value. It's saying it's the most important thing, top priority. There's nothing higher. So we don't think of worship as something that we just do on Sunday mornings or on Tuesday mornings here at Bible study. But we're giving honor and value to something all the time, and may it be as we come to know the Lord more and more and we see who he is and all that he's done, see him as the living God, may we be offering all of our lives to him in worship. This is what we were made for. This is truly living. So as we begin today, I want you to keep those quotes, th this thought in the back of your mind as we're going through the scriptures this morning. I'd like to begin just kind of looking at the setting once again of First and Second Kings. I want you to be aware that when we are opening the Bible, I'm really going to focus just on the last few verses of the section of scripture that you studied for this week. So in your small group time, you can maybe spend a little more time on day one of study because I'm focusing more in the scripture that is on day two. So first and second Kings, 
If you want to sum it all up, it's revealing Israel's unfaithfulness to the Lord. And then we're seeing the Lord revealed through this really dark time in Israel's history. If you want to have a, a wonderful synopsis of the book of First and Second Kings, check out the Bible Project. It's like maybe eight minutes long. And I just highly recommend that for any book of the Bible. They're doing a great job. So, yes, check that out. But we see here in the book of Kings, the Lord revealed as the king of kings. Let's remember, whenever we're reading it, that First and Second Kings was written so that the people that had been exiled, right, had been judged and been taken captive and were living in exile in Babylon, it was written to them. So God had, way back in the times of Moses, right, God's people had been enslaved in Egypt, and he brought them out and made them his own. He covenanted with them that he would be their God, and they would be his people, and they were to live as his dearly loved people, to obey him and reflect him in the world so that all the other nations of the world would be drawn to him, the one true and living God. Yet they had turned away from their God, asked for a king. We studied this, right? And then the kings had failed to rule like the Lord. They were not faithful to him. They turned away from him and worshiped other gods, and they mistreated their people. Israel was divided, and both Israel and Judah were conquered, and the people were taken into exile. So their nation had fallen apart, and no king was ruling in Jerusalem. So these people living in exile were wondering. There had been a promise that the Lord had given to them. He had promised King David that one day there would be one in his royal line who would rule forever. And so it looked like God's plans maybe had been completely ruined and they were wondering, what was God doing? Where was he? So first in First Kings, we see how we see this point in history from Solomon through to the divided kingdom and the beginning of the exile. And we see the foolishness of kings and nations who turn away from the Lord. We find every king is evaluated, not for his political success or worldly success, but for his faithfulness to God and the covenant. Through the exile, they were being judged for turning away from the Lord. But, as always, his judgment had come with hopes that they would return to him, that they would turn back to him and be restored to him. He hadn't forgotten about his promises. He wasn't on vacation. He was still longing for his people to walk with him. And he had not abandoned his plan to bring salvation to the world. So when we think of First and Second Kings and we look at the worldly kings, let it point us to the true king of all 
who is sovereign over creation and all nations. Yes, he raises up and brings down the kings of this earth, but he rules with justice and mercy. He lovingly pursues all people, and he alone is the king before whom all should bow. He is the king of kings. Then we also see in this book that the Lord alone is God. In the ancient Near Eastern world, all the other nations were polytheistic. Many gods were worshipped, and they were often different parts of creation. Maybe the land god or the sea god or the mountain god. And these false gods, with a small g, supposedly ruled in specific locations. Now, there were no instructions about how to worship these gods, these false gods, these no gods, because they were just idols that couldn't speak, and they couldn't hear, and they couldn't act. They couldn't do anything because they were dead. They were hollow statues. Worshiping them was useless, a total waste of time. People would say prayers and feed the gods by offering them sacrifices, hoping that somehow the gods would bless them and not curse them. But they really had no way of knowing if they were getting it right. When I think of Israel, then, with the kings, it began with Solomon having so many wives, right? The worship of, of the no gods came into the land of God's people. When I think of that, I think of the song from Sesame Street. Do you remember it? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Right? He is the living God who is high and lifted up, holding together this universe, holding us together, right? How in the world could he be included and put on the same level with their pantheon of no gods who were so dead, who had nothing to give them? And when I see this scene with Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, I'm reminded of how when the Lord had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, he had fought, he fought for them. And he did it. Every single one of those plagues was to show how he was the true and living God. And he was victorious over all of the no gods that were worshipped in Egypt. He's doing the same thing here in Elijah's time. He's doing the same thing today. Wanting to reveal himself as the one true and living God. So Elijah and the widow had seen in Sidon, Queen Jezebel's homeland, where supposedly Baal was ruling, and Baal was the god of fertility. There, God work through those jar, the jar of oil and the jar of flour to provide and sustain Elijah and the widow and her son. And then he revealed himself as sovereign over life and death when he, had, when he rose 
He raised to life the widow's son. This highlights his victory over another god. This name, its name was Mot, M-O-T, the god of death, right? And so now, the passage in 1 Kings 18 we're looking at this morning, we're seeing how it's time for the Lord to mightily reveal himself to his people once again. The battle that will take place on Mount Carmel is not just between Elijah and Ahab. The true battle is between the Lord and Baal, and we know who will be victorious. We also, I just also have to mention, in First and Second Kings, we see that the unfaithfulness of God's people does not stop his faithfulness. He is the one with true grit who perseveres. If it were me, I would have said, I'm going to go find some other people. This is not working. But he sticks with them. They give him sin, and he keeps giving them love. They are the covenant breakers, but he will not change. He will always be the promise keeper. So in 1 Kings 18, we see the consequences of worshiping idols or worshiping false gods, the no gods. And we see it with King Ahab. Here we find that worshiping idols brings trouble. You can open with me or read on the screens. 1 Kings 18, verses 17 and 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel. You love the the boldness of Elijah here, but you have. (laughs) And your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Here we're seeing Ahab in sharp contrast to Obadiah, who is the faithful servant of the Lord. And we know from the previous text we've looked at that Ahab did more evil in the sight of the Lord than the kings before him. And it's interesting to note, he hasn't been able to find Elijah for about three years now. He's been searching far and wide for him. But the Lord not only provided for Elijah, but he was hiding him and protecting him right there in Jezebel's homeland. So we find here Ahab is desperate. He's searching out for pasture to keep the livestock alive. He is king, but he is powerless. And so finally, Obadiah has to bring Elijah to Ahab because Ahab surely couldn't find him. And the greeting King Ahab thinks that Elijah's the one that caused all the trouble because he thinks he's cursed the nation, right? In calling for the, asking the Lord for this drought. Yet the calling for the kings in Israel was to lead the people in faithfulness to the Lord, their creator and covenant God, the only true and living God. And yet Ahab had failed utterly in this call. 
As I mentioned, all the other nations of the world at this time were polytheistic. So Israel was supposed to be set apart. They were supposed to be the only ones worshiping the one God. So then others could be drawn to him. So King Ahab and Jezebel had diminished the Lord of all by putting him on the same level as all the other gods of the day. And now with Jezebel, he had rejected the Lord's prophets and put statues of, of other gods throughout the land. And then they even brought the prophets of Baal and Asherah into the royal court. They were not only putting the Lord right on the same level as the other gods, but now they're elevating Baal and Asherah over the Lord. They're abandoning the worship of the true God. They were looking to the, these false gods to give them what only God could give. So Ahab, in abandoning the Lord and his commands and turning to, to other gods, was the true troubler of Israel. Trouble comes when we turn our hearts from him, from the Lord, to worship other things. When we worship other gods like Ahab, we see here how Ahab has the wrong perspective. He thinks that Elijah is the one causing the trouble, when, and he can't see that it's because of his sin. When we worship other things, our thinking gets twisted. And just like King Ahab, I guess I can speak for myself. When I put myself at the center of everything in this life and think that everything has to revolve around me. My per perspective becomes skewed. And sometimes I think that other people are causing the trouble when really it's me. <laughs> we worship the no gods when we take a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing. When we th look to something other than God to give us life. There might be a, a catch in our spirit, maybe. A little warning given to us about an idol in our lives. When something that we care about is threatened or we lose it and we completely freak out. That might be a little warning. Hmm. Maybe the Lord's trying to get our attention and woo us back to himself. Worshiping idols not only brings the wrong perspective, but then brings distorted living. We were made to live in communion with God, to receive life from him, and to then pour it out on others. When our lives don't solely revolve around the Lord, our hearts become fractured, our souls become split, and our lives are distorted. We settle for dead things. Rather than living in the Lord and his love, we settle for lesser loves that diminish us. We wound ourselves, and then we wound those around us. When God is in our first love, we end up not loving others very well. Yet, if we worship the Lord alone, life and healing comes to us. That's what he longs for. The other thing that I want us to be sure to see this morning is that when we turn to other no-gods, 
we fail in our mission, right? We are God's new covenant people, right? Just as the old covenant people, were, they were to be a light to the nations. We've been given the great commission from Jesus, our Savior and Lord, right? To go all into all the world. And when we turn to other gods, when we live just like all the other people do in this world, then we are not pointing others to our God who saved us and loved us. We fail in our mission to draw others to him. So can I tenderly ask this morning, are you bringing trouble because you're worshiping someone or something other than the Lord? Would you ask the Lord to show you where it is and to help you to turn back to him, to put him at the center of your life? And then as we read on in verses 19 to 21, 1 Kings 18, we see the Lord's call to wholehearted devotion. And I would say that these verse, this verse here, verse 21, is probably one of the most important verses in all of the book, urging God's people to follow him wholeheartedly. So now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, Elijah says. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who are eating at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. This call here through Elijah's lips, but this call from the Lord is, oh, would you walk with me? Walk with me. Don't keep vacillating. You can't worship me and then go worship Baal and go back and forth and keep limping along. As Jesus would say, you can't serve two masters. We can't be serving the Lord and then serving other gods at the same time. You have to make a choice. You're serving one or the other. Think of it this way. I have a covenant relationship with my husband. Can I be loving my husband if I'm loving some other man? not possible. And we see here that their hearts had turned away from the Lord because we will find further along in this chapter that Elijah will have to rebuild the altar that is there on Mount Carmel. It seems that no sacrifices had been offered there in a while. Tough truth here is that our obedience reveals whom or what we're worshiping. Now, we do not have statues that we're praying to or, or, or giving sacrifices to today. 
but we do try to find security and comfort and hope in other things. John Ortberg says this, we will take care of what we value most deeply. What do we talk about, think about, spend our time doing? Where does our money go? All these things reveal maybe some lesser loves. And I have to note here, the people's silence echoes to this day. Because in other times, when the prophets spoke, the people would repent and say, we will choose, we will commit to following the Lord's. But here, silence. I don't know if they were afraid to make that commitment in front of Ahab. We don't know exactly what was going on. But we can't pass that line by, that there was just silence. There would seem to be no response. And we'll see when God shows up amazingly what's to come. So how does this apply to us today? We are God's new covenant people. We've received God's abounding grace through Christ, our Savior and Lord, who gave his life for us, who paid the price for our sin so that we, the unholy ones, could be restored to our holy, sovereign, high and lifted up God, that we could be, that he comes near to us Right? and calls us his dearly loved daughters, that his spirit abides in us. It's blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And so what is our response? How would it be? Wholehearted devotion to him. Paul Tripp says this, God's grace abounding to us inspires willing surrender, joyful obedience, and faithful service. Tim Keller talks about hearing a speaker when he was a, a young man many, many years ago, and the speaker de described the vastness and the wonders of the stars and all of the galaxies. And then she said something he never forgot. You cannot demand that the one who holds the universe together with his pinky finger be your assistant. I think sometimes we get things reversed and we want the Lord to serve us. But in response to who he is and what he's done, may we be drawn to serve him all of our days. And to surrender to him, to not make demands of him. I recently spoke with a woman who goes every Tuesday evening just down the way here to the Kane County Jail. And she meets with the women who have found themselves there. She leads a meeting where she seeks to share the love of Jesus and mentor them and encourage these women to live drug-free and I said to her, oh, it's a beautiful work that you're doing. And she said immediately, it's not work. It's a joy. 
There's no place she'd rather be on Tuesday evenings. But they're serving her Lord and Savior and loving these precious women. So as we close today, it's my prayer that you'll take some time to maybe reflect on some of the questions that I have for you on your page there. Do you value the Lord most deeply? Are you more concerned about finding success in the things that are valued in our world today? How are you tending to your relationship with him? And would you ask him to show you how to walk with the Lord, to walk with him in more wholehearted devotion? Maybe there's something in your heart that you need to surrender to him today. Maybe you need to take a step in serving him, even when it's not easy. Maybe you need to take a step of obedience. And may he give you joy in it. By his spirit, he can do that. And so I close with the thought that I began with this morning. May God have the same place in our hearts that he holds in the universe. Let's pray. Lord, turn us back to you. Help us to revolve our lives around you. And you alone, for you are our life, our only Savior and King of all. In Jesus' name, amen.